Welcome, everybody, to Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shraven. Today, I'm super happy to welcome Nick Toon uh, to the program. Welcome, Nick. Um, hey, Ryan. Nick's coming all the way. Yeah, it's Nick's coming all the way from the UK. He's a tech consultant who focuses on uh, architecture, uh, continuous delivery, and helping teams um, build better teams. Um, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Thank you. Well, cool. So, Nick, why don't you tell our uh, listeners a bit about yourself and the type of work you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I probably don't have a very specific way of describing what I do or job title. And that's because I like to join all of the dots in an organization in the technology side. So architecture, delivery, I'm particularly passionate about continuous delivery and building teams. Um, and a lot of these things cluster. You need the architecture to enable autonomous teams. You need the mindset of continu continuous improvement to make continuous delivery work. And you need good leadership that enables teams to um, build quality into the way they work, build learning into the way they work. So it's really about putting all those things in place, I think. And I try and help out with whichever of those things is most beneficial um I, I i work with companies in a couple of different ways some companies i work with on a longer term basis so i'll work with them for up to three days a week i might be taking on a tech lead position or um, level above that working with the cto and some companies i have smaller engagements just doing some workshops and coaching and that might be uh, maybe maybe two days to five days as a short time and a bunch of stuff in between that. Well, nice. So when you get called in, what sort of the method or methods you go? Back? I, I came across you via domain-driven design, and, and maybe that's most of it. But when you get called in, what are sort of the methods? Talk to us about your approach that you sort of bring to sort of solving these problems. Yeah, so I think my approach is always continuously evolving. One of the things I like to do is I like to work with different people and I pick up tricks from lots of different people who I work with. And one of the techniques I'm using at the moment is a trick I learned from Matthias Vera. And basically he, he's got this idea that if you're an event store, if you hire an event storming consultant, you're going to get event storming. Hmm. If you hire a database consultant, you're going to get a database oriented solution. So what we try to do is, and this is, this is all he's influenced me. We try and start from a blank canvas and not be too constrained by any particular solutions. And so we just ask people to put, put stuff on the board that's relevant to your job. If you're the CTO, it might be some metrics. If you're an architect, it might be bits of your architecture. If you're a developer, it might be a microservice. If you're a UX person, it might be a user journey or persona. And then, then we start merging that and asking people to cluster things and to make the post it's bigger if it's more important to you and that way it's kind of like a, a brain dump before mm -hmm. we get too fixed on one solution and one approach we just try and get some ideas out and sometimes sometimes we discover things that people weren't expecting i remember one workshop this year and we, we did this technique and there was like four post-its. We went through all of the post-its people put down. We identified some problems and opportunities. And there was like four post-its left or something. 
Amjad, before we take a break, let's quickly talk about those four post-its. And the last post-it turned out to be this big topic that was more important than anything. And people didn't realize. I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit careful not to give away too much information at the moment. But it was basically the, the item was, it was one of the business people who joined the workshop. And it was, it was their opinion on strategy about what the company need to get to the next level of funding. And before that point, no one else had spoken about that thing. And once we started talking about that post-it, suddenly everyone realized, oh, that's the goal. We don't need an amazing architecture. We don't need to scale the company. We need to get to the next level of funding. That, that's the goal here. All the other stuff we talked about is secondary to that. And so by getting that focus, that shaped the workshop. So we, we focused on that topic more. So if we'd have done event storming, would we have found that? Probably not. No, probably not. So not all of my workshops go that way. Um, that's something new I've been trying out. Sometimes people come to me with a more specific problem. And yeah, we'll jump into event storming or we'll jump into message flow modeling. And message flow modeling is just um, seeing, seeing the flow of events and commands between different bounded contexts or microservices. I find that's a, a good, good tool as well if I'm not using event storming. But yeah, I would say event storming, it's probably still probably the default technique I use or some variation of it. And it sounds like whether you use event storming or others, you're kind of honing in quickly on the outcomes or goals. Like you're trying to, to, to zero in on what's really important. Yeah. And then from there sort of work backwards to, okay, what are the different ideas we have? But that sounds like if I can interpret what you're saying, is the ability to hone in on those goals pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly that. That's actually, you explained it better than I explained it. And I've got an example from two weeks ago. So I got an email from a company about doing some workshops in DDD and architecture and bounded contexts. And we, we talked about what they've done so far. They've done some event storming. And they were like, what kind of workshops could we do here? And people might think like domain driven design architecture, let's map out everything. But my focus was, yeah, what's the problem here? What, what, how can we deliver something for the company? Because even though I'm into DDD and architecture, which people associate with lots of design analysis, I'm also very passionate about continuous delivery. Deliver things continuously, find, find the MVP, deliver some goal. And so in this workshop, I think they were surprised when I said, well, what's your, what's your product goal? What's the next thing you want to deliver? And it was something in, in the fall of this year. And I said, well, let's stop the event storming and let's focus on delivering that objective. We'll do some event storming focused on just that thing, but we won't try and find all the bounded contexts. We'll focus on achieving that goal for October we might discover some bounded context on the way. We'll do some bits of event storming just on that. And in parallel, we'll look at the big picture. Basically, what was exactly what your point was, let's not get stuck in analysis here. Let's actually try and deliver something useful. Because that, that's, that's the most important thing, I believe. I mean, it's, there, is, there is value in analysis and finding bounded context and subdomains, but... I'm still enthusiastic about delivery, to be honest, and I find that's more important in most yeah. of the situations. No, I hear you. And it's 
architecture is a means to an end, right? And some folks believe it's the end in and of itself, especially a lot of technical folks who, who I admire too, but they'll get sort of wrapped up in the, the, the beautiful architecture and perfectly nailing down everything and lose sight of, you know, what, why are we doing this? Um, and uh, I mean, I've seen that across my, my career. And so let me ask you, so it sounds simple in practice, right? Come in, figure out what your goal is and focus. But in my experience, I don't know about yours, it's not common practice. It's it's not done very often. Do you have any ideas? Like, do you have any hypothesis as to why it sounds simple, but it's just not practiced very much? I mean, companies typically have lots of work in progress. If you talk to different stakeholders, they have different opinions about what should be done. When you talk to developers and architects, they're another level disconnected and they're not sure what the goal is. So I think it's very easy. I think probably prioritization is the hardest problem. Prioritization at the company level is even harder than the hardest problem. So I guess that's where it comes from, not being able to have um, priorities and focus. No, I would agree. And priorities on the outcomes too at the organizational level. Because if everything's important, then everybody can justify the sort of project. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The classic, classic. Um, I need to be careful in this interview to not give away too much confidential information. But one of the companies that I have worked with, <laughs> they told me they had 300 active projects and they had like <laughs> less than 2,000 employees. Like almost everyone gets their own project in the company. Like, how many of those projects are actually moving forward? How many of those projects are like stealing people and actually nothing's moving forward? Yeah. Now I've been helping a client with doing an agile transformation and they wanted to use Kanban and I got called in to quote unquote teach them Kanban and I got in there and started interviewing and sort of Kanban would improve, but I you know, I think about are we building the right thing and are we building the thing right? Yeah. And these are two related problems. And when I got in there, I say, listen, Kanban will help you sort of build the thing right, but it's not going to necessarily help you figure out what you should do. Um, and so what I what they agreed to is that let's spend the first day on sort of design thinking of Mobius and sort of what are you trying to solve? Because your intake of work is really, and to your point, prioritization, that's where you, the heart of the challenge is. You're, you're trying to do too much with too few. And then we can talk about it. Um, but yeah, I, I've learned that I've, I came up in engineering sort of background, I learned XP and, and, and those sort of things, but it wasn't until I got to sort of more of the, are we building the right thing in the last say five or six years that I've opened my mind up to like, you know, the whole different ways of thinking before we even design it and build it and code it. There's this whole part upstream that a lot of us miss or a lot of our industry misses. Yeah, um, got a lot of things I wanted to say on that topic, actually. Yeah, go for um, it. I guess the first one is some of the workshops I get called into, it's about modeling the solution. And then we realize people don't even agree on the problem and they can't actually describe how the product should work. And so it goes from a solution focused workshop to a discovery focused workshop. And we're trying to work out basically what I, what I often find is trying to break it down into what's the smallest thing we can deliver and then let's design a solution for that. That's, that happens a lot when people, people think, yeah, we've got some requirements, we've got a good idea of what we need to build. But the workshop switches more to discovery mode. The other thing I wanted to say is it's probably been the last five or six years where I've also switched more to build the right thing. Start of my career was all about continuous delivery, deploying to production, tens or hundreds of times a day, yeah. uh, getting to management design and architecture. 
And it was actually when I worked in the UK government in 2015. So the UK government was doing a big transformation and they had a centre called Government Digital Service who were leading transformation across government. And they put these principles in place. And one of the principles was very uh, design and product focused, very user research focused, and every team had to do user research. And this, um, this agency, GDS, they had the ability to stop your project moving from one phase to the next if you couldn't demonstrate you've done user research. And as part of those principles, they also talked about get the whole team involved in user research. So this was the first time in my career I had actually seen users talking about the thing we're building or we're trying to build. And that's when you realize, yeah. that's when you realize um, you, you're a developer on your, on your MacBook with your amazing internet connection and you've got these people who they don't even understand the words on the page. Um, it's slow for them. Just so many insights there from, from the user perspective. And, and I say in that, I would say in that situation, I also learned that getting the user research is a good way to address the issue of priorities. Because if you've got your hippos who are saying, we want you to build this feature in this way, it's hard to, it's hard to go against the CEO or the CTO. However, when you've got a video of an actual user saying this idea sucks, <laughs> that's hard for the CEO to to uh, to stick to his guns on that one. I've seen it a few times where um, the CEO CEO said something like, "Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that's a pattern." Or I don't quite agree with that. I'd like to speak to that lady, which is like I can see in the C CEO's face like he he disagrees with it. But he, you can't disagree with the user. Well, well, you can, but it's like he 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 couldn't take it that well. It's like it it hit him like a trade. Like wow, this is a yeah. user saying something that's completely contradictory to what I believe and what I've been asking the company to do. And in, in that moment, he probably had that response, but it's ticking away in his brain now. Right, like this is what the user really thinks, and hopefully that will catch up with him. Um, but I think, yeah, on the on the general topic, user research is is only is only one aspect. I would say I think getting the whole team involved has been something I found beneficial as well. So not so not just giving developers requirements. That's the old feature factory mindset. But developers um, getting involved in user research, doing event storming, and designing the solution with the domain experts and the product owners. That's something I've seen much more of in the last five years uh, when i worked at salesforce in 2016 that it was happening there too in the teams i worked with and so that's shaped a lot of my thinking now build build the right thing is about talking to the user getting the whole team involved and then build it right is all the continuous delivery ddd stuff well yeah. i think yeah domain driven design is useful for both discovery and delivery i would say I would agree. I think domain-driven design, it, it can be a way to go about discovery to try to figure out some of the things that will inform sort of your architecture. But discovery is a big part of understanding what are your, what is your domain and what are the different contexts yeah. and for things. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it, it is very interesting. I've seen it in my career. I got the reason I got from build the thing uh, right to build the right thing is I was working with helping agile transformations. I go into company. All they want to do is crank out more user stories. Our velocity is X and we want to get our velocity to, to, to Y. 
And then I would say, well, 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 why? Like, why are you doing this one? Well, the user story and the acceptance criteria says I need to sort of do this. When a lot of times I would get frustrated with engineers who kind of just wanted the story and wanted to kind of go code, you know, and I would get frustrated with them. But I've learned over time on our teams, we typically have cross-functional and we have the UX person arguing for the most, the best user experience. And then we have the tech lead typically arguing for the simplest, most straightforward thing. And then they'll have this argument and they'll go back and forth. And earlier in my career, I'd want to run in and be like, make a decision. But now I sort of let them stand back and, and let it happen. Like let them argue it out. Because what happens is they eventually reach some sort of compromise. You know, you, the UX person will get almost what they want, but they'll back off on a couple of usability things. And the tech lead will be pushed to make it more usable. And we've learned in time, like let them wrestle out and then that's okay. But that part needs to happen up front because otherwise, you know, teams are just grabbing stories and building things um, and too focused in sort of the weeds. Yeah, I think, um, I can't remember the exact details, but Jeff Goffel in his Lean UX book, he, 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 so he comes from a UX background and he is of, I think he's of the general opinion that compromising on UX is, is a, is an acceptable compromise if you can deliver things quicker and learn from them. So I think there are people in UX who get that. I think Marty Kagan in his product book, Inspired, also touches on that, but I don't remember the exact details. But yeah, I agree with you. I think um, if the conversation is healthy, let people fight it out. Let them have those difficult conversations rather than trying to avoid conflict. And I think that's quite a general principle as well. Um, con conflict is... Not, it's not always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's in the, the right environment as long as the, the good outcomes come out of it. And I think it can be healthy. And I've had situations in my career where I've been a leader and I've tried to avoid conflict. So on one project, I hired these two developers and I wasn't that aware, but I could sense a few things weren't right. But basically, they both owned a different bit of the code base and they wanted to work in a different way. One was very pattern oriented. Another one was very get things done quickly. And basically what happened is uh, after about three months, the bits they'd both been working on had to be integrated together. And then we started to see some problems where they had to collaborate. And this code base had two different personalities. So you could be jumping through files and it's like different, just, just different conventions all over the place. So I would much prefer to have those difficult conversations up front than just to try and avoid it. Yeah, I was, I was, I was teaching a class this week and we always start with problem framing, which seems like simple in space. So we'll just, what problem are you gonna try to solve? And what people learn is actually, it's pretty hard to write a, a good problem statement. But in 20 minutes, we typically have folks collaborate. And my point is in 20 or 30 minutes, if you can't agree on the problem statement, you have no business going any further um, in, in design development. Because no matter what you do later, you're going to find out at some point that you weren't aligned on the problem and you just figure out you just wasted a lot of time and effort. And so spend time up front, like as a team, sit around and craft a, a joint problem statement. And it's interesting. People get it, but it's not practice. Every time I do this, I ask, how often do you sit down before you start a project and as a team write the problem statement you're going to solve? And practically nobody raises their hand. Um, <laughs> But what they learn is if you would do that one, to your point, take a little time, what problem you're solving, what is your goal before you get into the, the architecture and the UX, 
it'll go a long way. And I think, you know, and in, in here in the U.S., design thinking is a general, it's an umbrella term, but that that's, you know, the, that's, I think, helping start to get some people more into sort of doing this, but it's still not as widespread practice. Even in the Agile community, it's not as widespread practice. It's a lot about stories and trains and other sort of <laughs> things that need to run on schedules. Uh, at least in the U.S., that's what it's like. Uh, yeah, are, yeah. So. yeah, pretty similar, I think. Well, let me ask you. So so these days, I won't say that you're often oriented with domain-driven design, but that's sort of, you know, I, I guess what you know. How did you come to discover um, the domain-driven design and have you taken sort of what was came out really about 15, 16 years ago with Eric's work and then evolved it. Because I think what you're doing in domain-driven design builds upon that, but takes it in some new direction. So how did you come into it? And then where are you kind of going with domain-driven design? Yeah, uh, some good questions. Um, I would say before domain-driven design, when I was learning to code, I always had this idea of, let's try and do things properly. I didn't know what properly meant at that point. But I was like, what, what, what's the right way to do things? What's a professional way to do things? What's an expert way to do things? When I was first learning, I thought it was code comments. And I like, had a comment on every line of my code. I thought that's the right way to do things. And then I quickly, <laughs> quickly had that illusion shattered by some engineers. Um, then I was working one of my first jobs, probably about 2010, early 2010. And... I was lucky to be working that company and I had a senior engineer who was mentoring me and he, he, he was very, he wasn't just a, let's get code done. He wasn't obsessed about the technology. He was more like a bit, a bit of like an enthusiast or an artist or an, a bit of an engineer in how he liked to think about patterns and how things are structured. And he'd often talk about design patterns and Martin Fowler stuff and blog posts of people who were into those topics, so very design, cared, cared about design. And then he pulled out the domain-driven design book one day. And I guess uh, for the first, for the first, even the first chapter in the book where Eric's talking about, he's sitting down with this um, electronics engineer. They're designing some software. I think it's for PCBs or something like that. And I thought, well, that sounds common sense, but that sounds like the right thing to do. You, you, you have to try and understand the problem you're solving, work with the people who are the experts who know what this, how this the domain works, let's say, and then you try and build something that works for that. So I guess that was my, that replaced code comments as the right way to do things. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, then, then you've taken it from there and now um, there's, you know, Founded context canvases. You have the DDD crew. Maybe talk about some of the things you, you you've done with yourself and your others that sort of advanced um, the state of the art. Yeah. So so those things we've done. It's all been um, open on GitHub and Creative Commons, and that reflects the goal we're trying to achieve, which is to get more people into design. So I, I guess one of the traditional complaints about domain driven design has been the first time user experience is not good. If you have to read this big blue book, the big blue book is also more of a, it's more about the way Eric thinks. So there's a lot of interpretation involved. 
and I think maybe maybe you need to understand the basics more to appreciate his book. So how could we, like the end goal is still the same. We want people to be passionate about design, understand the problem they're solving, get into the domain, start creating models using techniques like event storming. But how can we get people to that stage? How can we get them to see the value without having to read big thick books or go through lots of theory? And so what we've done with those repos is, um, it's kind of like the concept of shuhari, like the, the basics, just do these things, follow these recipes, you'll get an idea of what this thing's about, and then you can take it and build upon that, and you can break all the rules, and that's fine, we don't care. We don't care about these tools, it's just getting you in, helping you see the value of design, and then you can become an expert building on top of these tools. So with the canvas, with the canvas, the goal there was, um, it was based on how I did things. So I started having a checklist, like how can I, what do I do personally when I'm looking for a bounded context and designing architecture? What are the things I'm looking for? And how can I, this is for myself initially, how, how can I apply that consistently or not miss something like i don't just want to be doing things ad hoc i want to understand how i think so i created a checklist of all these things i know about bounded context the first one is the name so the name is one element of a bounded context and how you name something has a big impact on how you perceive that whole thing then i learned that just by getting people to write down the description of a bounded context raise lots of insights when people, two people might call this thing the sales context and they both think, oh, we know what that is, we're aligned. But when you ask them to describe it, kind of like your problem statement you were talking about earlier, when you get people to put their thoughts down and write two paragraphs, suddenly you see that, oh, we see this thing completely differently, even though we have the same name for it. And when you write a description, you can see words like and. Whenever you see and, that's always a sign that, well, and is joining two things. Mm -hmm. That's an obvious potential split where things shouldn't belong together. So that I found, I found that yeah, write the name down, write the description down as a whole group, and that that helps you to spot problems earlier, get better insights into your design. And then I just added other things to that checklist. So some things in the book are: is a domain core supporting or generic? Added that to my checklist because then I found. When people think it's core and someone thinks it's generic, you probably got a bit that's core and a bit that's generic. So again, another potential split there. And then, then I thought, what's, how can I make this useful and share it with other people? I was going to write a blog post and then I realized I'm a big fan of the business model canvas. I thought, let's try the bounded context canvas. Just put this, turn this checklist into something visual that people can use. And it, and, it, it's it's like asking yourself nine questions. Like what are the what are the nine questions you would always want to ask yourself before designing a bounded context? It's basically that. And then when we made it Creative Commons on GitHub, people have con contributed and improved it a little bit. So I don't think the tool itself will lead you to a good design, but I think it will force you to ask yourself eight or nine questions that you might easily forget. It's interesting. Now, because I think 
as somebody who read the blue book way back in 2003 and then and, and really dove into i dove into domain driven design for with designing within the system for many years and then i sort of dropped it and it wasn't until a year ago i discovered what you're doing and it came back around and i think i think you're right you made it approachable and, and that's i think that's the biggest thing in the visual canvas there's a place for everything your questions i think you've made it much more to your point it's sort of the shoe piece like some context-free rules there's a place for everything, questions to walk through. And uh, I think that's something we're sort of missing, you know, and it's, it's not to say anything's wrong with what was there, but I do think that if anything, you guys have made it approachable and understandable and adaptable. Um, and and not, not so specific, like you can take, you know, you can take a cloud architect, you can take a software architect, you take an engineer, you can take designers. I think a lot of your work, when they look at that, it's, it's approachable from all angles. It's not purely a very, tech tech oriented sort of thing um that's the goal <laughs> so where's yeah sorry, go ahead. Um, no, go i think it. it also goes back to the build the right thing over the over those years the, the product mindset has really ingrained itself in my way of thinking like everything's a product it's got users it's got different customer segments in fact you've got your you know your your newcomers, your advanced people, how can we keep improving these products? How can we add new features like the canvas and how can we improve the marketing so people understand it better? And I guess that's a lot of my thinking, treating these things as products. Yeah, so where, where do you, what's top of mind for you these days? Like what topics are you studying up or staying out in, in advance of? Um, I would say at the moment, the challenge is applying these concepts on a higher level. So somewhere in the business enterprise architecture space, I find the domain driven design principles are useful, but there's this space above that where you've got business capabilities, microservices, um, value chains. And I see these different departments in the organization, the business architects, the EAs, the software architects and developers, they're all, working on similar things and they all have different words to describe these things and it feels like that's a problem at the moment that's a problem to adoption so I'm, I'm trying to work out how can we how can we have something useful that aligns people without becoming the new TOGAF which I think most people would accept hasn't really been that successful and isn't that friendly either <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't think TOGAP was going to come up today. Uh, so, uh, no, and I think that, you know, and as, as I see, one of the things, I think we, we talked about this briefly, uh, I'm sure you see this, a lot of companies are breaking up their monoliths and moving to microservices. But in my experience, they struggle with how, how to break them up and how to organize it. Because for good or for bad, the monolith kept everything under one, one roof, right? And when you go to break it up, there isn't an obvious maybe way. And so I think to me, domain driven design and that more architecture enterprise level is at least a guide to how might you go about organizing your services within your company. But again, line back to something like your business model, which is a lot more stable than probably your org structure or other things. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's connecting it back to the business goals game, having that vision of what we're trying to achieve we're not just trying to break a monolith apart for the sake of it, connecting it back to the strategy, for example. 
And actually, I would say in that space, um, Wardley mapping has been kind of something that sits in between traditional strategy and architecture. And it kind of it's it's doing a good job of joining the two. And I also think Teams Apologies is in that space. And it's, it's a bit of a it's a, like a melting pot at the moment. You've got domain driven design, enterprise architecture, team topologies, wardly mapping. Something good will come from it. <laughs> That's awesome. So you mentioned um, Eric Evans. May, who, who maybe some of your influencers, other influencers out there who've influenced the, the way that, that you think and, and, and go about the way you architect solutions. So probably the the mentor I told you about from my first job. He got me very much design focused. He got me stopping stopping thinking about code comments and more about the design of code and architecture. I think probably the biggest influence on my career was when I joined a company doing continuous delivery. I think that was really that was really like like I don't know like having your head like put in a different universe. Like someone takes your head and puts you into a different universe and you can like see it and then they pull you back out of it. That was a real like I, in my whole life, I've been living in the matrix and someone just showed me there's a whole new universe. And I think that that company was amazing because everyone there was really um, a mentor or an influence. When you see self-organizing teams where there's no there's no superstar, everyone's just always trying to drive, drive it, push the needles forward on how we work as a team, how we do architecture, how, how we learn as a company. I think all of those people probably the biggest influences. Um, I think also in the DDD space, probably Matthias Ferrar, Alberto Brandolini. When whenever you get a chance to have workshops with those people, they're they're really good at digging out these real deep insights. And you're like, wow, I could have looked at that problem for a year and never seen that. And then these guys can just like pull it out of nowhere, like this that changes your way of thinking. I think those people have been great to work with. And again, that goes back to my point of just trying to do workshops and learn from as many people as you can. And you pick up ideas from all of these different people and they're all good at different things. They all have different specialities. Yeah, it's, it's you know, when in speaking of workshops in the last year, given we've been all remote, I know you've done a, a big job of transitioning your work probably traditionally was an in-person workshop. You go to your client, you get the whiteboard, you do all the stickies. Now it's all switched to, to, to virtual. I know you use um, Euro and other C sort of collaborative tools. What are your thoughts on the possibilities of those tools um, to grow this? I mean, do you think that you sort of miss the days of in-person or do you think there's some real things that we can do with these collaborative tools that are sort of unique and, and different? So um, I think again, in that, the, my approach has been my workshops are a product and I have customers of these workshops and I have to make these workshops as good as possible, applying a product mindset of having hypotheses about what could work and then trying things out in the workshop, reflecting on that and improving it for the next workshop. So my workshops have evolved quite a lot in the past year. My first remote workshop um I was using uh, screen share with slide decks, PowerPoint. So very similar to the in-person experience. And then one of the transitions I made was everything on Miro. And then suddenly this Miro board goes from a place where you jump for activities to it's, it's the whole universe of this workshop. The slides are on there, the activities are on there. 
then one of the progressions I made through through it um, chance really was I was talking through some slides on my Miro board and someone added a comment as I was speaking like he's he, he made a joke about something I was saying I'm like that's a great idea that that's the next step the Miro board is this living thing it's not just for me it's for everyone so now I say in my workshops add your links to blog posts and talks and ideas and questions all around the slides and so everything's on this Miro board and if you think about the in-person experience you've got flip boards and white chart um, you've got flip charts and whiteboards and when you turn over the piece of paper what's underneath is hidden now you can't see it with a Miro board it's it's always visible because there's as much space as you need your slides are always on the Miro board if you're doing a presentation in a workshop Someone says, oh, can you go back to that slide from yesterday at like one o'clock in the afternoon? You're like, back, 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 back. With Miro, it's all just there on the board. It's just permanently there. Once you've shown someone a piece of content, it's there. And then after the workshop, it's still there. It's always there. You can give people a download of the Miro board and they can, they got access to that forever. Like every, so when you put ideas on the Miro board, that is a permanent record. It's always there. And so that has really been fascinating. And I'm just wondering what comes next with Miro. I think Miro is very, it's, it's not immature as a product, but it's still at the start of something what could be much bigger. And, and they are adding new features on a frequent basis. So now I'm thinking, how can I recreate all of those benefits in an in-person workshop? I'm wondering if it might be I will still use Miro for all of my content. I'll have all the activities on Miro. People might still use whiteboards and flip charts, but after every activity, take a picture of your exercise output and put that on the Miro board. So we're still getting the benefits of Miro and also in person. I think my dream would be to have like um, life-size Miro, but you can just, have Miro on on your wall or something? <laughs> no, I think that when you see a Miro, it, there's a wonderful messiness uh, about it. Like you, when people are adding things and sticky, like you can't be too organized and too sort of anal about that one. But to let the thing that I really appreciate in the platform is the ability, and you hit on this. Everybody can just add their ideas and you know everything, and they can orient around. And that sense of collaboration is just—it's unlike almost anything that I've ever seen in person, yet it's a wonderful sort of collaborative tool. And every time we've been using it for a while, and every time I use the client, they're always like, what is that again? I mean, it's still relatively not super well known, but it's starting to get there. Um, but I'm excited to see what's possible. And I think for, especially for the domain driven design where you need to span out and sometimes see the whole thing and then and then zoom in and then go back out, you know, it, it like anything else, nothing after I've seen allows you to sort of see the whole picture and then zoom right into the details uh, nicely so yeah. all right last, yeah. last most important question what are you listening to these days what, what's on the uh are you, are you a music listener or, or podcast listener what are you listening to these days at the moment i'm listening to the news in french because i'm learning french uh, my wife is swiss her family speak french i have french lessons so i, I try and listen to as much french as possible uh, i don't understand all of it probably understand like i don't know they speak quite slow on the French news channels compared to like TV shows where they speak at normal pace. Yeah. Um, they're probably going to like 30% of the news in French. So 
So I can get value from it, especially when they're talking about Britain and Brexit. And <laughs> Boris Johnson, they love Boris Johnson in France on the French news. He's always coming up, so I can pick him out. Well, even we over here in the U.S. know who he is. He, he's quite a character. So, uh, well, Nick, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for spending your time and uh, have a great rest of the week. Cool. Thanks for inviting yeah. me. It's been a great chat.